0: Hi guys, welcome back to the Borderline Book Club. It's your host, Sarah. Just Sarah today. Sorry to disappoint, but it has been a wild few weeks and Tom is at work and I have not have uh, the ability to record part two together, I haven't even told him I'm doing this because I am feeling really slightly disappointed, but I also know he understands that we're on a timeline here. So we're going, we, meaning me and you all as the audience and Nova, who's laying on the floor, who ate an entire cheese pizza last night. She broke into the bedroom of my housemate and ate his 14 inch cheese pizza. So if we have to do a pause for a vomit break, you know why. Um, But we are going to be going over part two of chapter six, and the title for this chapter was Understanding Your Situation. I'm going to do just like a really short review of the second half of this chapter, um, because obviously I don't have the partner perspective with me, but, you know, I know Talon well enough to probably assume what he might think. So if I can, I'll add in some of those thoughts here and there. Um, okay. So starting off with setting emotional limits. So the book says emotional limits are the invisible boundaries that separate your feelings from those of others. These boundaries not only mark off where your feelings end and someone else's begin, but also help you protect your feelings when you are feeling vulnerable and provide others with access to your feelings when you are feeling intimate and safe with them. Okay. So boundary setting, I'm a huge fan of. I think that's fabulous. What I will say about boundary setting is that especially when a person who doesn't have borderline is setting a boundary with a person with borderline, the boundary needs to be clear and kind. It cannot be, um, used as a punishment or like negative feedback. If it is used that way, it most likely will not be very effective. But if it is used in the next time to better support our relationship, can we do X, Y, and Z? That's a much more positive framing of a boundary. It talks about the benefits of having personal limits. Um, It helps individuals limit what can help you, um, and it can help you define who you are. So identity stuff. It says that people with weak limits often have poorly developed senses of identity. I don't know that I really agree with that. Um, I think I would say that not everybody has been taught how to have limits and boundaries. And that doesn't mean that there isn't this like, strong underlying identity, but maybe they don't know how to communicate the identity. Um, people with well-developed limits have the ability to distinguish themselves from others, take responsibility for their own feelings, hopefully. I don't know that boundary setting inherently means that you take responsibility if you do it well and you say, I feel statements then yes. If you don't set a boundary well and and don't use I feel statements and instead use the you statements, um, I don't know that that is taking responsibility. It says that people who set limits see feelings, beliefs, and values as an important part of who they are, have respect for other people's beliefs and feelings, and understand that another person's values and beliefs are equally important as important in defining who you are. Wow, words. They understand that another person's values and beliefs are equally important to defining who they are. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, setting limits helps bring order to our life, can help us feel secure, promotes intimacy, and not enmeshment let's do a little bit more of a reading on the enmeshment stuff because that's really interesting to me. So the idea used to be that when two people got married, they became one. Today, brides and grooms are, oh, that's so heteronormative. Oh my God. Today, brides and grooms are more likely to believe that one and one still make two they say that this concept of one and one still making two or just couples to have spaces in their togetherness to stand together yet not too near each other and to stand apart, but not too far apart. So enmeshment is kind of the inability to differentiate ourselves from someone else. Um, I have talked a lot about the experience of feeling very enmeshed with my mother and, um, And like, it's been a really messy process to kind of disentangle that. I do think that people with borderline are at a much higher risk of enmeshment if people around them like allow them to become enmeshed. I think people with borderline, their default is going to be sometimes to try to become enmeshed because it gives us a sense of love and security and identity and all of these things that maybe we haven't felt before. Um, Enmeshment is definitely like hard to repair, um, because it, it becomes normal, right? It it becomes where partners do things to make life easier for us. And then we struggle to do things for ourselves. Um, so while there are like emotional feelings of safety and enmeshment, I wouldn't say that it is sustainable safety. The book goes on to talk about boundary issues between borderline and non-borderline people. It says different kinds of boundary violations can cause different types of problems for children when they become adults. Interesting. Okay. So if parents or other caregivers encourage children to be dependent, as adults, those grown children may believe that they need someone else to make them whole. I have seen this pattern Not necessarily within my immediate family, like my like nuclear, my parents and my sibling and I, um, because my sibling and I were very empowered to like do things that would give us our own kind of firm ground to stand on. But in my extended family, I have seen a ton of like enabling behavior in childhood that resulted in adults being unable to. Um, support their own life and manage their own relationships and their own struggles and their own parenting. And it's been really sad for me to watch because I know that people have the skills to be able to do things independently, but again, skills are taught, right? And so many of us with Borderline who weren't taught those skills, we are essentially playing catch up and trying to teach them to ourselves at the same time as like, Processing the trauma that resulted in us developing these not effective behavior patterns. And I think that's something that partners sometimes forget, or family members or whoever sometimes forget. It's like, we're not trying to be challenging. Like, let me repeat that. We are not trying to make your life hard. We are simply trying to get through our life. And when Getting through is the best you can do. Basically staying alive. You're not forced to look at if your behavior is effective or not. You're just like, okay, I'm still alive. That is a really difficult thing for people who don't have borderline to understand. Um, The book goes on to say that children of distant or abandoning parents may have a hard time emotionally connecting to others. For sure. Love scares the crap out of me. And I was raised with two parents, one of whom was emotionally over invested in me and one who was very distant and love feels scary and confusing. And I feel like I'm always waiting for when it's going to go and I get like a high when it shows up. And for me, it's been really hard to accept that healthy love doesn't have those toxic, cyclical, huge up and down patterns, that healthy love may not give me the high of the crazy, crazy, crazy ups, and that that's actually good, that that's okay. That's kind of been a part of my process and healing is like recognizing that I crave the high of chaotic, enmeshed, obsessive love but that that is not good for me. And that's not good for anybody that I'm in connection with. Like anytime I've had a love like that, it has gone up in flames and I'm at a point where like, I don't want those flames. Um, okay. So those are just a couple of the non-borderline boundary issues that we are reading about in the book. I'm doing kind of like a high level overview of this book today. So I'm not getting into much of it. Um, but I will say that one of the the quotes from the book is children who experience abuse also learn to deny pain and chaos or accept them as normal and proper. It's really interesting to think about families as systems, right? So family systems theory would suggest, um, which is just a bullshit term, but basically means that in families, the, the, the units of the family operate as a system, like one whole piece, right? And when something hard happens, the inherent goal of any family system without even naming it is always to get back to its baseline or homeostasis. So how do we, process and cope through pain at the same time as trying to get back to normal. Like, and if there's a, a dangerous, severe, abusive situation, the only way to get back to normal is to refer to that as normal. Right. And so there's this distortion and thinking patterns of like, I know it's not right, but I have to make it right in order to keep living in this environment and stay as safe as possible. Then when you're outside of that environment someday, trying to determine what is abuse or what's not abuse and what is safe and what's not safe is like very distorted because of those childhood programming things. The book talks about defense mechanisms that we often deploy as a way of, um, avoiding intimacy or, um, love when we weren't raised in healthy environments. And so those defenses include controlling, withdrawing, blaming, intellectualizing, which means like overanalyzing to try to understand, um, perfectionism, black and white thinking, excessive concerns for one another. These are all ways to try to like avoid our feelings and avoid communication, right? Like we don't have to talk about abuse if we believe that we are the reason that caused it. That's like over intellectualizing. I did this. So this happened cause and effect. I don't have to say that hurt me if I, and if, if I let myself believe that it was my fault. Um, defense mechanisms are helpful when we are in the immediate environment that doesn't feel safe or isn't safe. They are not helpful when we are removed from that environment. I think what partners forget is trying to understand the root of the behavior. So like, instead of stop doing that, it's why are you doing that? Where does this come from? And that is a a shift from like trying to fix to trying to work with someone to understand and then empower them to do the healing. Because partners cannot fix this for us. They can be helpful in us naming what's not working, getting access to resources to mitigate that, implementing the strategies, but partners cannot fix things for us. And I've had so many partners that have tried to fix and it's like, it doesn't work. It does not work. Um, the book goes on to talk about how everybody has the right to set limits. Um, it says that often non-Borderline people will look outside themselves for confirmation that it's okay to set limits in a certain area. I totally agree. I think anyone who's in a relationship with, I mean, anybody, but a person with borderline definitely should have outside supports for managing just the kind of day-to-day of living with someone with this disorder, particularly if someone's really symptomatic. However, you have to be objective in how you talk about it. Because if you're talking to your family and your friends and you're portraying this idea that your partner is crazy and mean and all of these things without them understanding why their behavior is happening, that, has the high possibility of like pitting your partner against your people. And that never works. Let's just be real. Everybody wants the aesthetic. We can get together for Sunday dinner, go see a movie, be it birthdays and graduations together, right? Like that's the dream for most people. When you pit one person against a group of other people, particularly a borderline person, they are going to feel isolated and that will be very difficult for them to repair. It's not impossible, but it will include a lot of work. So when you're talking to your outside supporters and getting that validation and confirmation, partners need to be using objective language, asking consent. Um, I would say therapist, go to a therapist, that is going to be a person who can be beneficial as long as you make sure that that therapist doesn't have an internalized or even externalized stigma about borderline. Okay. Guidelines for setting limits. They say that you should clarify your limits. Um, reminding your partner that you too have the right to have your feelings and experience experiences acknowledged as real Um, yes, that's totally fair. The language I would use is something like, I see that you're hurting right now and I'm hurting too. We're both hurting. My hurt isn't any bigger than yours. I'm not trying to take up the space that you want and need. I'm just simply asking, is there space for me too? That is the way that I would go about that for partners of people with borderline. Um... Okay. Asking yourself questions that can help you better understand your personal limits. What hurts? What feels good? What are you willing to give up for a relationship? What are you not willing to give up? Um, I mean, this, this is pretty standard of any relationship. Let's be real. I don't think that that's limited to people with borderline they do say that you should calculate the costs of not having a boundary. How does not having a boundary affect you? Um, In the moment, boundary setting is hard, and so we often want to avoid it. The cost of that in the long run is far more detrimental than just figuring out how to have the conversation up front. And I'm really seeing this play out in some of my friends' lives right now, and even in my own life. It's like I ignored that I needed to set this boundary early on. And now the problem is 10 times bigger and really muddy. And it's not fair to the person that you need to behave differently if you don't tell them that, right? That's confusing that to them to be like, but we've been doing this thing for three years. So now you're asking me to do it differently. I don't know how to do that. This is where that personal accountability and responsibility that Talon talks about so often comes in. Um, okay. Use a non-combative communication style to become a good listener. Love that. You're reflective listening. You're saying, I'm hearing you say that, you know, those are really beautiful strategies for making people feel heard and understood. Um, also I would add, do not say, oh, have you tried X, Y, and Z? Or have you thought about when people come to you to talk, particularly in a conflict, the most helpful thing we can do is to just listen and then ask them what they need from us. That gives them the ability to advocate for what it is that they need. I know for me, I don't need people to tell me what to do. I know the answers. I just need to have like seven conversations about it before I'm like ready and energized to implement the strategies to have a better outcome. Like, it's not validating for me to pe- to have people give me advice. Um, making eye statements. I think that that is very effective. So we're not saying you are. We are saying I feel. The one caveat to this is the DBT Dear Man is a good example. When you have strong distress as a result of someone else's actions, you can say, I have seen you do... X, Y, and Z. When this happens, I feel. So it gives the person objective data about what they're doing without blaming and shaming them. And then it requires that you take responsibility and accountability for your feelings. Okay. The last part of this chapter talks about diffusing techniques. So, um, these are strategies that disarm the people who are giving you criticism, and enhance and empower you, the book says. If you use these suggestions, speak sincerely, naturally, and neutrally, and avoid being flippant or counterattacking, you will have more success, the book says. So, the first thing is to agree with part of the statement. So the example is, I see you're going out with your friends again, said in a disapproving way. Your response would be, yes, I am going out. They say, when I was your age, I would never have gone out on a date looking like that. The response would be, no, you probably wouldn't have. They would say, I can't believe you won't let me go out with my friends just because you found some pot in my room. Oh, God. (laughs) If you weren't my mother, my life would be so much better. The response is true. I'm not going to let you go out with your friends because you've been smoking pot. So not like leading into the critical statements and just giving the facts by agreeing with whatever part of the statement is true. Um, the next Concept in diffusing is agree with the possibility that your critic could be right. So, criticism I had an affair, big deal. Response Some people might not think it was a big deal if their husband had an affair, but I am not one of those people. Another example How can you even suggest not inviting mom to the party? She acts a little strange sometimes, but she's still your mother. Response Yes. She is still my mother, and some people would invite all of their relatives no matter how they act, but I believe that mom has a choice about how she wants to behave, and if she is going to choose to behave or say outrageous things, I don't feel comfortable inviting her. I maybe would have left the term outrageous out um, because that has some criticism back, but we can kind of see that, like, what they're saying is... If there is any part you can agree with, agree with it. When we come in um, counterattacking, that isn't very effective. I love this last one. Use gentle humor when appropriate. So the example is, I can't believe you forgot to buy charcoal. How are we going to grill the fish? (laughs) Oh my God, this answer. Well, we've always been meaning to try sushi. (laughs) Um, it's the laugh about it or cry about it stuff, right? Like, like when you're giving feedback to a person with borderline or any person, ask yourself, is this worth it? Like, is this the hill I'm going to die on for getting to buy charcoal to grow the fish? Not the hill I'm going to die on, right? And we have to take those things into consideration when we're setting our boundaries, like. Is this a non-negotiable? Does this really matter? What are the consequences of this? How severe are they? Don't sweat the small things. I think that's good advice here. All right, y'all. So next week, Lori is going to be back for chapter seven, where they will talk about how to effectively assert your needs with the borderline person in your life with confidence and clarity again, I'm so sorry. It's just me. I know that's like not nearly as fun, but I wanted to make sure that we didn't forget to give, uh, the part two of chapter six out. And, you know, I mean, as always with this book, it's like some of the examples are very nineties, which I mean, I forget when this edition of the book was published, but it was like early two thousands. Um, so, you know, I have to just overlook the heteronormativity because, again, that's, like, not the hill I'm gonna die on. Um, some of the examples they give are great. Um, I think all of the strategies they give are really good, but I don't think that they give enough, uh, person-centered examples and responses specific to borderline. And so, like, If I was a partner or a person with Borderline who is partnered, I would listen to this podcast together and talk, like, pause and talk during it or talk after about, like, this was interesting to me. I learned this. How can we use this in our relationship? Right? Like, taking this data and applying it and using it in a way that works for you guys and is agreed upon beforehand. That will help you avoid any, like... Unexpected conflict in the future. Thanks for listening, guys, and enjoy Lori's episode next week of the BPD Book Club. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful Borderline Podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.